It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. To, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Why does it have to be either or? I know people that are ETH maximalists. And when I mentioned that the gas price was high because it was like 500 away, which is like a hundred bucks a lot of times. And if you want to deploy a contract, a thousand plus. And I'm like, man, the cost of you know gas is really high, man. And now it's less than 10, thankfully. And he'd be like, I can't believe you're saying that to me. Do you know how much the Vitalik has done for us? And I was like, oh man. Warren Buffet knows what he's talking about. Don't you mean Warren Buffett? All right, guys, welcome uh, to another episode of the Rituation Room. This will be a good one. I'm excited to talk talk to Rob today about kind of everything and anything cryptocurrency. We're going to get into a little bit about what's happened lately because it's been a very exciting few months in the crypto world. Uh, Rob, thanks for doing this, man. You got it. Pleasure to be here. Enjoy the show. Yeah, for uh, those who are unfamiliar with you, kind of just give us a rundown about where you're coming from, a little bit about your background, and then what you're passionate about today in this realm of finance. Happy to do that. Yeah, Bitcoin, class of 2014. I've been full-time into the space since 2017 when I really onboarded in a big way on Solidity, getting my nails dirty in terms of coding smart contracts on Ethereum, Tron, and then dipping my toe into some of the other projects like Stellar and getting the meat and potatoes of how these smart contracts can be disruptive to accounting law and really you know, push forward some interesting use cases. Uh, I got a blockchain fundamentals course approved by CSU San Marcos here in the San Diego area in 2019. And we did that um, in, during uh, the previous academic year and then we're running asynchronous. So you can kind of do it in your own time going uh, starting in the fall been doing the crypto investor summit. So LA blockchain week for about the last three years. And then yeah, the YouTube channel since May of 2019 on all things crypto. Awesome. So class of 2014, was Bitcoin your first exposure really to any cryptocurrency? It was. Um, I first heard about it through some um, Super Bowl sites. And I'm like, okay, like I want to go in something beyond the office pool, you know, when I was working at H&R Block. Yeah. And I see that the lines are sharper in some of these other areas and they're using Bitcoin. Like, what is that? So I go to Wikipedia to see what Bitcoin's about. And I'm like, oh, this is a, a cool way to go peer to peer and transmit value, you know, in a non-fungible way. And you can send it all over the world. And like, whoa, like, let me take a step back here. What in the heck is this? And that really um, piqued my interest. And I went from there. So when you when you were first introduced to it, talk to us a little bit about kind of the story in terms of your either belief in it or your 
uh, how you kind of went about using it or, or buying it? Because a lot of people hear about it, right? Especially most people would say in 2017 is probably when they first heard about it these days. And they don't, they don't, they aren't usually buying then, or maybe they were and they had a bad experience and now they're back. So talk to us a little bit about kind of your adventure within that space. Well, I was most interested in the utility and I liked to be able to send something and not have to worry about a chargeback. If you're a merchant, I had a bunch of years of experiences in like computer stores and we, you know, send out a computer using PayPal and then they would immediately do a chargeback and then the money would get locked up and then it's a 90 day hold. And for my bosses, they're like, there's gotta be a better way to transact tech types of sales or commerce for trustless parties. So I liked the ability of a technology to send value and have it be non-recourse. And so, you know, the other option at this point where if you wanted to send value, you know, how to use a middleman through like MoneyGram and all these like incredibly shady ways where the recourse wasn't really feasible for the counterparty to explore. Um, so I, I like the utility of this. And I thought that it's exposure on a broader level for more than just, you know, card transactions, um, especially for high risk businesses that credit card companies aren't super excited because the chargeback rates right. uh, would be interested to give a try to. I think that's super interesting because it sounds like you were experiencing issues with this transaction area before you even knew Bitcoin was a thing. So when the, when you saw it and you researched it, you were like, oh my gosh, this is this could be amazing kind of from the start where my myself included and a lot of other people are like, oh, this could be a great investment vehicle, right? Where I can grow my wealth. So that probably allowed you to see the light and kind of see the potential for crypto from the start, I would guess. Yeah, I'm very use case driven when it comes to looking at altcoins or even Bitcoin. I, I like the metric of using Bitcoin as a competitor to you know Western Union or getting value out to other countries where there's not a huge dip in terms of the fees. So I first and foremost thought about it along those lines. And then I knew people um, from my college days that came from Russia um, and you know former Soviet Blanc uh, US, former USSR and we're trying to get value from sale of homes and they would tell me about you know they'd get it in cash and you have to hand it across the street to the bank and there's like you know a six foot gap when you could get robbed and and just like you know all, all sorts of these crazy stories about transacting large amounts of capital and I, I thought it, it's so seamless I think at the time it was like $300 um, that to, to transact in this and you know how this could really explode in terms of its utility. Yeah, I don't want to jump, you know, too far off uh, off the edge here before we kind of just get this thing going. But while you're talking about potential use cases in other countries, can you kind of speak to uh, what we could potentially see and how cryptocurrencies can solve a lot of issues in countries outside of the Western world specifically? Because I think, and this is something that's come up on my channel a lot, again, myself included, I think about crypto, I'm very self-centered and I think about the United States and how good we have it here. And how yes our financial system definitely has flaws it's by no means off the deep end like some of these more third world or second world countries so where do you see cryptocurrency or any project maybe specifically uh, really benefiting in those areas that we don't really think we need here but could be a, a game changer in other spots yeah unbanked is huge and i know people that are in you know russia or countries that the currency has a built-in really aggressive inflation rate and they're trying to get out of their native currency as soon as possible. And I like the push to, yeah, to straight Bitcoin. 
I know that there are people like, um, you know, that are whales in Bitcoin that will take meetings like Tim Draper to South American leaders and will tout that, you know, Bitcoin should be on your national balance sheet. And, you know, they would say at LA Blockchain Week, like, there'll be a point in time when Bitcoin is on national ledgers and, you know, only corporations will own it. And they're trying to kind of make it along those lines in terms of its utility. And I think that the way that at least the Draper suggested that get done is a more broad use of the Lightning Network. So you're not having those huge transaction costs and that it can be done by scanning a QR code and like it's being done in many parts of Western Europe now. Yeah. But to include people that are unbanked, yeah, that'd be that'd be big. I mean, I know they're doing it well in India with some of these apps and some of them are talking about a tokenization backend. But the way that people can transact value um, outside of cash could only benefit the institution that jumps in big in that game. Yeah, just for those that are listening, if you're not listening as, as a recent upload, I think it was probably a week and a half ago where at the Bitcoin conference, they announced that El Salvador is making Bitcoin a legal tender for them. So that's obviously the first country that's taking that massive step. And just from some of the things I've seen, it looks like they're getting the lightning work or lightning network kind of up and running there. And, and I think I saw today that transactions in El Salvador are up 3x this month versus the same month last year. And uh, hopefully, I mean, hopefully it works out for them. And, and it's a huge step for cryptocurrency was, was hearing that news on your end, something that was validating kind of towards your belief system or, or, or how did you take that news? Yeah, I, I think that the writing was on the wall with a lot of that. I really look to the tastemakers of, you know, Greenwich and a lot of the hedge fund guys too, because they have uh, influence in a lot of the regions and I'm seeing more and more uh, large, large institutional investments into crypto. I know that um, they had Pomp that was interviewing Jim Cramer and he was talking a little bit about once Bitcoin hit a certain threshold, I think it was like 50,000 at the time, you're seeing huge players that can finally invest because it's worth that much now. Yeah. And when it was smaller, they couldn't even touch it in, in terms of institutional capital. But I think that it's an interesting way to provide some stability to a country that has very little amount of stability. Yeah, and it will be a interesting use case. It's actually something I was thinking. It, I, I don't want to compare it to what happened with Elon Musk and, and Tesla and that kind of thing. But I was thinking, I was like, okay, this one small country adopted as legal tender, this could be really great or it could be terrible because if they don't handle it the appropriate way, that is one thing I don't think people are talking about where it's gonna scare a lot of people away, I think, personally. I think the watershed for me was seeing the mayor of Miami really go all in. And I know that he has connections with a lot of Central America and South America, and he's kind of feeling the waters there. And uh, his move to, yeah, direct city resources in that direction because he saw so much potential there and then certainly all that ftx is doing in miami and making that you know the switch from san francisco in terms of you know crypto hub stateside yeah. that was like oh that could domino into south american countries and then you know who knows from there yeah uh are you if you don't mind me asking are you currently in california i am i'm in san diego area and um yeah we, we have a lot of because we're a border city have a lot of um, influence and read a lot of news about what's going on in TJ. I know they're trying to dip their toe into crypto a little bit with Tijuana, just on the border there, mm -hmm. and then down to Rosarito. So Mexico's watching um, the U.S. to see what they're doing in a big way. And of course, they don't have the regulatory 
um, difficulties that you know we have with everything kind of ironed out as a first world nation. Yeah, uh, I'd say on the positive end, it looks like El Salvador could kind of be that first domino to fall, especially in South America, uh, where a lot of people aren't going to want to be left behind, right? A lot of these countries are kind of, I wouldn't say neck and neck in terms of being, you know, rivals or adversaries, but just in terms of trying to get economically ahead, I don't think they want to see one kind of press out too far in front of the others with Mexico, of course, being the dominant force uh, on the northern side. Well, I would also see with my coworkers here that the you know remittance remittances back to Mexico, um, you know I, I would do travel down to Mexico and you know you pay in pesos but you get back or sorry you pay in dollars down there and you get back in pesos, so they're trying to get rid of the capital you know any way they can and yeah. and I would uh, you know my buddies would tell me they'd pay a hundred few hundred dollars in fees remitting cash back to their <laughs> families, and so I'm like. I mean, Western Union is just raking it in with these <laughs> yeah. institutions just for such an easy use case. Um, so I, I, I was really bullish for the longest time about blockchain being able to scoop up a little bit, bit of that market share. Yeah, that makes total sense. I haven't heard that before. That's hilarious that they will take your U.S. dollars and get rid of their, pay, their pesos. <laughs> I mean, it's smart, oh, I yeah, guess, definitely. on their end, right? Uh, that's, oh, yeah. yeah, it's uh, a good... Uh, good back into what, what potentially could come there. Um, I want to get back to talking about smart contracts because this is not something I'm very smart on. So maybe you can enlighten us a little bit. So uh, first off, how'd you decide to get in that space? And then when you did, you know, it sounds like guys like you are starting to introduce formal training courses and this kind of stuff, but it's really hard to find, right? I mean, like you just got to kind of look things up and try and learn. So talk to us about how you got interested and then how you educated yourself. I found a lot of value in really just the free resources that were out there. I remember using Quora, you know, tutorials that were even on YouTube back in the day. Uh, explainers on, I guess, one of the precursors to get books. So it's like, essentially, like, like a medium, essentially, like an article that would break down how it's coded um, and you know, what the possibilities were. I remember one of the keynotes one year was, yeah, Tim Draper, who, if you remember, I think he bought a few thousand Bitcoin from when Silk Road was seized hmm. um, and it became just a, a big splash in the space. And he would talk about how a smart contract will be able to negate a lot of the small business costs when it comes to accounting and law because they're binary contracts and they look to a trusted Oracle, let's just say NASDAQ. So if you're doing a contract with someone, you don't need an expensive lawyer to draft the contract. And they always say the best lawyers can wiggle themselves out of just about any legal you know agreement right so i didn't want to bank on my lawyer being better than the other person's lawyer especially if i'm dealing with you know credit worthy institutions triple hey um I, I didn't really trust that relationship so hello it is ryan and i was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com i looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I, I thought, wow, if I could learn kind of how all this works, how it could be deployed in the long term, you know, riding the first wave of this end could serve me in good stead. But yeah, for accounting and, and law, to be able to know the contract hasn't been changed, 
you can't mess with the results of it and it's going to happen how it's going to happen based on a third party is pretty powerful for both sides of the, of the equation can you uh, i'm trying to figure out the best way to word this but can you just kind of break down what is a smart contract and and what peace of mind maybe like why does it add so much peace of mind to something that you're doing if it's a legal contract a transaction whatever the case is um, what is a smart contract just for those who are who are unfamiliar sure a smart contract in the language that i use it which is solidity is a dot sol file and very often you'll go to a trusted uh, open source uh, depository for this so let's just say github and what people will do is they'll say okay here's a smart contract that isolates if bitcoin goes to let's say a hundred thousand then this party will send this party a bitcoin for example right. sometimes they're doing it um for a bet or what have you so what a coder would do is he would look at an audited set of code and you know one of the memes is what is a solidity or a, a blockchain engineer and it's a control c control v you know it's a lot of times the code is pretty well set and you just have to isolate and change some of the parameters right and so what i will do is i'll take okay so here's a tested amount of code that does a specific function and i save it as a dot sol file i change a little bit of it i write the wallet of both parties and then i what's called deployed on the contract so let's say it's on ethereum I would use my MetaMask wallet, put in a certain amount of gas, and then boom, it gets stamped on the blockchain after however much time based on the amount of GUI or gas. And then I use a tool like Etherscan and I upload the code so that they can um, verify to both sides that it's verified code. So now both sides are happy that we're looking at this Oracle, which is an Oracle is like looking at NASDAQ or in this case, Coinbase that we're both agreeing that Coinbase, when they say it's at 100,000, they're not lying. And that both sides agree that this event's gonna happen. This one Bitcoin would be sent from one party to the other. Right. So that's in essence what a smart contract is for an agreement, you know. And yeah. in terms of your involvement there, you were kind of acting as an intermediary between the two parties, is that correct? Yeah, the person that deploys the contract just makes sure that both wallets addresses are there that there's not any problems with the code that, that you know that it's trusted code it can't be audited or it can't be drained uh, there's not you know i'll, I'll do uh, penetration tests so i'll make sure that there's really no wiggle room for either party or a hacker to go in there and drain it for the one bitcoin right and that there's no or minimal possibility of a rug pull or that the oracle can't be messed with because very often you'll see these large projects, decentralized applications, and they won't verify their code. So they'll do that because they like having it as a black box that they can mess with things down the road. One code will allow them to control the entirety of the contract. So yeah, I just essentially help both parties stay honest to each other and then get the stamp of approval by seeing it verified by a trusted source. Got it. And is this something that you can profit off of? A lot of times the people that are doing the deploying of the smart contract are just paid you know, by the hour because it's so seamless. There are tutorials, you know, Free Coding Academy has it. There are MOOCs out there on Coursera or edX that can help people do this. So it's not so much the technical understanding that's valuable. It's more the players involved or the community. 
uh, I'll just tell you that one of the interesting things about the last few years of the crypto community is for the longest time, I thought that the technology would lead the value. And it's really been the opposite way. The community has really brought the value and the projects that are first movers, they do well, you know, like Uniswap, um, you know, has maintained majority market share for that, right. uh, you know, 50-50 exchange. But what we're seeing now with the airdrops, with decentralized uh, organizations, autonomous organizations, DAOs, that I think is a reflection of if you're not trumpeting or people that you respect aren't trumpeting a project, these, this code and all this tech can be easily replicated or forked. And then, you know, you have all the perfect work for so the case of version one and version two fully able to be forked. So you had, you know, sushi swap and all these other projects that just forked it in a night and then enlisted influential people to say, Hey, you know, this looks pretty good. And then for a while, they would even get more staked than Uniswap did. Wow. So it's interesting to see how the community and that push for social media really is the name of the game uh, now in crypto for a lot of these, especially DeFi projects. Yeah, it feels like, I mean, maybe this kind of goes for every, a lot of things in technology, especially with social media, but it feels like the first movers that do something well enough, you know, as long as they get a solid backing behind them, they're kind of off to the races, right? Because like you said, a lot of these things, there's obviously unique differences between some of these projects, but what's the difference in Google and Ask Jeeves, right? One did a much better job after X amount of years and people just kind of trusted it because it was probably the first mover. And, and I don't think Ask Jeeves is even a valid URL anymore. I don't know. Do you remember Ask Jeeves? Absolutely. Ask.com. <laughs> yeah, I remember using AskJeeves.com. That was, that was great back in the day. Yeah. But I, I think the biggest light bulb moment for me was when I logged into my MetaMask and I saw the first Uniswap airdrop. And I'm like, holy smokes, my entire Christmas spending, even if I sell just half of it, is completely wiped out. What is wow. going on here? And then I, I read what Hayden wanted to do in terms of incentivizing early adopters and talking about how in, I know that the Git um, coin project tries to incentivize open source development, but incentivizing these early adopters that are in there, trying new tech, um, putting in crypto to help it scale and trumpeting their successes or, or talking about the tech on their YouTube channels, podcasts, their influential place. By rewarding these people, it actually is a positive feedback loop, which it makes them reward a project or you know talk about a project even more. Yeah. And then the most interesting thing is the people that I've seen that have really done well, they won't sell their airdrops because they're like, you know, Rob, my cost basis is zero. So no matter when I sell, my ROI is infinite. Yeah. So, you know, I, they're holding on to, you know, thousands of their Uniswap tokens. And, you know, as it goes with the 30, 40, you know, they're looking, you know, really smart. Uh, but I would always tell people along the way, I worked at private equity for a year and the smartest people in San Diego County, they'd always say when something doubled, sell half, uh, you don't want to be left holding the bag when it goes to nothing. So and that's what I've tried to do. But looking at Uniswap going from three to you know, 45, I, <laughs> maybe that wasn't the smartest decision, but I'm, I'm happy that I at least you know, sold out baseline amounts. I think we've all had those instances where you look back, you're like, how did I sell? And then you realize the gain that you made on the sale is something ridiculous. It's like, you know, you can't beat yourself up too much for that. But um, again, I just want to kind of break it down a little bit for those who are not as familiar. 
talk about MetaMask just really quickly, um, and then talk about airdrops really quickly, just uh, in simplified terms. Uh, um, MetaMask is a wallet that is a Chrome extension. So you download a Chrome extension, and it allows you to use Ethereum. Right. And it also allows you to use other tokens that use the Ethereum virtual computer, um, EVM. And what I do work with is other tokens that use the Ethereum virtual uh, machine. And an airdrop is if you interact with like uh, the first example of Uniswap, I went on there and traded, let's say 10 DAI, which is the stable coin linked to the dollar and overall collateralized by the MakerDAO project by staked Ethereum. And then for that, you know, I got Ethereum. And so, you know, transacting these various tokens, I got a stamp on the blockchain. So they say, oh, Rob used our platform. Thank you. We have a representative total of the total, uh, you know, representative stake in the total, like essentially equity is what it is. They send you like a stock-like token. Right. And that comes, you know, without cost. And when you open up your wallet, you're able to see, oh, I have this token here. And I can do something with it. I could leave it in here forever or whatever. It's just a token, you know, so to speak, of appreciation for using their platform. And it's a way they incentivize people to continue to use it. Yeah, makes sense. Um, similar realm. We've been seeing a lot of altcoins popping up, uh, especially every time kind of we go into this crypto bull run, it seems like more and more altcoins pop up. I think we're up to close to 10,000. You probably know the number better than I do, but it's something along those lines. And with that comes these stories of celebrities, influencers, whoever you want to call them, literally they've just given, right? A couple thousand, whatever, uh, whatever coin, the hot coin of the day is. And then there's really no repercussions for them just to kind of pump the coin and see what happens. So do you, how do you kind of view this in the crypto space? Because I think a lot of this stuff is very diluting and it gives people the wrong idea. I don't know about you, but when I walk around my workplace, I hear more people talking about Dogecoin than any other crypto <laughs> on the market. And I just kind of keep my mouth shut and keep walking because I know I'm not going to get through to anybody in a, in a quick uh, conversation at the, you know, water cooler. So how do you kind of view these crazy altcoins, influencers pushing different things and just the mania that's going on right now? I tell people if they want to get us even a significant or even a small stake in crypto and in, in any degree, try to yeah get any of the forthcoming airdrops or there are ways like, for example, there's a site, you know, published zero X, you can write articles about the news or crypto. And they'll give you, you know, airdrop tokens on a weekly basis. So you can get value there. Do not put your fiat into mm. crypto because it will very likely have a volatility that you won't be able to stomach. I know someone that, yeah, like you were mentioning, they saw Doge being discussed on SNL. And they thought that if it's linked to, you know, one of the richest men in the world and they're talking about it should be on their purview for their investment portfolio. and I asked her, I'm like, okay, you're putting in $500. How would you feel if you lost $10 of that? And she's like, well, I'd be sick to my stomach. And so I said, in no way should you get anywhere near FTX or any sort of leverage trading platform. Because she says, you know, I hear that you can do 100X, 101X, 125X a lot of times. And I'm like, well, in your jurisdiction, you know, you can't, you have to use a proxy and that's, you have problems there. And then it's on your taxes now. 
Um, you know, they're going to be asking about it when you do a return like they did last year. Do you own any, you know, a digital assets? Yeah. Uh, virtual currencies, I think the IRS call it. But I tell them you, you really don't because even the ones that it seems like they have um, nicely distributed amount of people that own the token so you can't get a whale that'll slam it yeah that there's too much volatility there because it's paired against bitcoin right so the base crypto pairs are against bitcoin so when bitcoin goes up it's getting pushed up when it goes down it's getting pushed out through no fault of its own right so it can be a great project and it's going down and yeah in terms of the celebrity angle i know that people that lead projects they'll pay through cameo or through direct dms and you'll they'll pay them a handsome amount for a, a tweet and then they'll retweet it and trumpet it and say this person's providing legitimacy you know they'll have like a two-minute interview with Waz or something that's really piecemeal but taken out of context seems really impressive but a lot of times that's done at arm's length it's done through their pr organization it's done through an, an entity that's supporters of this project and yeah, it's, it's definitely not kosher from the celebrities vantage point. They're getting their fee, but you, you don't want to be influenced by a project that really has no meaningful stake besides an, an entity that's trying to push it up. Yeah, makes sense. I find myself struggling a little bit in this realm because obviously freedom of choice, right? Allow people to buy the stupid coins that they want to buy, allow people to make the stupid coins that they want to make. But the other side of me, because I have such a strong belief in Bitcoin and, and some of the more prominent projects is like, I feel like this is bad for the environment. You know, I, I, it's, it's one of these things where I feel like it's distracting and I feel like it's kind of diluting the market a little bit. So I kind of struggle back and forth with that. But how do you feel about, you know, shit coins or whatever people want to call them where there's really. Okay, round two, name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. No, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing you're really getting out of it other than the ability to buy something. And, and it's just a made up currency for lack of a better phrase. Yeah. I think a lot of these projects don't know how, or people, I don't think fairly understand how simple it is to deploy these coins. Many people have a basic idea. They'll have what's called a right white paper written and it'll a lot of times not even be in proper English. And then, you know, for a hundred dollars, a lot of these platforms can get going. And it's just a matter of doing hashtags and then trying to pump it up. If you're on discord, you'll get a bunch of, at least I do, I get dozens a day, check out this token. We're already on Uniswap. <laughs> I remember when uh, I was on, oh geez. Yeah. I was like a Twitter spaces and it was like a pitch room with VCs and they're saying, 
you know, our project is so esteemed that it got listed on Uniswap after many <laughs> months of vetting. And no one that was on the main panel was like, wait a minute, anyone can list on Uniswap. This is, uh, there's no red flags going off here because there's such a lack of understanding. Yeah. And, and that's also why I think that I like the movement for DAOs to go forward. So, you know, on Reddit, which is the real home for long form crypto discussions, you have, you know, ETH Trader, cryptocurrencies, Fortnite VR, and a lot of these tokens being or started to be, vir, you know, vir, virtually um, valueless. But when you look at the airdrops that are happening on a month to month basis for people's memes or commentary, you know, it amounts to quite a bit. So people are earning a sizable amount of crypto just doing these posts, adding vibrancy to the community, bringing other people to the community. And then these subreddits are doing an interesting job by bringing further use cases for the currency. So, you know, either buying it back with memberships or having advertisers use um, the moons, as they say, or whatever the token is. And then the result of that is either it gets burned and the percentage of your tokens become more representative of the total platform. So it goes up because there's less of them right. or the value goes up by the buying up at a certain time that kind of pushes it up. You know, I do stuff with um, the XDI community on there and, you know, just any kind of posts, any commentary, any discussion about it, they provide the RXDI token. So I think that's a good way. If you want to introduce the rest of the world to crypto, it should be not by losing your shirt by going 125x, but I think being rewarded for a funny meme or something that is a feel-good situation. Yeah, I've, the other argument that I've heard that has kind of made me sway a little bit the other direction is I think it was, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, the guy who runs the Bitcoin Cash podcast, but he was talking about Dogecoin in a way where, you know, somebody goes to dogecoin and they get burned right well at least now they're introduced to the crypto space and they're like oh it's kind of cool let me do a little bit more research and maybe they find a more legit project so that's another way that i thought was like oh that's kind of interesting it's funny how like projects are so dependent on the leadership yeah. and a lot of times it's just like one or two you know i think roger Ver does bch you have justin sun with tron of course satoshi i think one of the biggest blessings about bitcoin is that they haven't had a person, you know, besides a few that have purportedly, you know, presented themselves yeah. as him, but no one that's definitively been proven to be him. Um, I, my DMs are going to get full as a result of this, I bet. But um, I think that the leadership of the project is so important. And when someone like uh, Vitalik Buterin goes on to Lex and does a good interview, the pumping of the coin and people get so enthusiastic about a single personality and person. When we know that Ethereum is a foundation, you know, based in, I think it's Switzerland or Sweden, you know, he's Russian Canadian, but he's really the figurehead. And so I, I thought it was also interesting how even when we're trying to promote um, the DAOs, the decentralized organizations as the technology being pushed to the forefront, we still really do look for a visible figurehead to lead the way in a lot of these. Yeah. And you're even seeing, like we talked about with Bitcoin, this decentralized network. I mean, there are people, like you said, that have, for better or worse, people like Michael Saylor and the Winklevoss twins and Elon Musk, you know, as much as people hate to admit it, 
uh, have large influence over over this thing. And and I don't know that that's going to change in the near term. I think it needs to get to a sizable market cap, probably, I don't know, closer to like a five, $10 trillion market cap before we're seeing uh, any directional stuff just from a CEO tweeting something out. But uh, on that same line, while we're kind of talking about community, I think something else that I've kind of noticed lately, and again, as a guy who's a true believer in Bitcoin, and I don't really mess around with with anything else. It's it's been tough to watch is things like at the Bitcoin conference where just these hardcore Bitcoin maximalists, right? And where if you even mention another altcoin of any sort, you know, you're going to be kicked out of the building. And for me, I'm like, you know, why are we approaching this with the? I think they're starting to call it toxic Bitcoin maximalism or something like that. And maybe that is the right term for it because it's just this idea that. It's Bitcoin all the way and no other project's going to have any survivability or any use case. So um, how do you kind of see the cryptocurrency community in terms of a lot of people take sides? It's like their sports team and they won't, no matter what happens, no matter what happens to the thesis, things could change and they're never going to kind of alter their their uh, viewpoint on it. So how do you kind of view that space and um, especially the, the Bitcoin maximalist type area? If someone's a firmly uh, a maximalist and really eschews anything other than their intended coin, a lot of times I'll just unfollow them on Twitter because that shilling, there's a place for that. And it's interesting if they have some compelling points, but I think that this ecosystem, it's so, at least how it started out, people support each other. There's open discussions. There's long form discussions. I don't like it when people are using bots or accounts that are, you know, egged, uh, you know, anonymous accounts on Twitter and will kick down a project or try to be negative just for the sake of, you know, being negative. So I understand that when you have an anonymous component of social media that just wants to be negative to um, make their project seem more viable, there's a place for that. And introducing doubt may help your project in the long run. But yeah, just to be all in on a project and not have an open mind for anything other than that project, I think is foolhardy. I like that the Bitcoin maximalists that I follow, I like Pomp because he has a big following, obviously, and has a wide range of guests. But I like that he also will entertain the thought of, you know, the market cap proves the leader in the long run. And there could be other projects that are doing interesting things. You mentioned Winklevoss. I like that even though they are Bitcoin bulls, they will pat um, the project on the back, you know, when Ethereum is doing well. And I really think that when it comes to tastemakers that the Winklevoss twins, because they have such an ingrained network on Wall Street, at Harvard, in, you know, uh, the Hamptons, like they know everyone. And so when a country really flips, it's only when the people that are in a leadership role in finance and government take a meaningful stake in it, can things kind of change for the rest of us. So I mean, for the longest time, I would only use, you know, Gemini because I, these guys are a known commodity. They're already in Facebook and, and they, they know everyone. Yeah. And so I feel like if I'm putting my fiat on some sort of platform, I at least don't want them, you know, fading into obscurity, which these guys under no circumstances will because everyone knows them, you know, the yeah. social network movie, <laughs> you know, they're famous in their own right. So. Yeah. I totally agree with that. Those are, uh, probably three of the guys that I, I respect the most in that field because a guy like Pomp will still have DeFi guys on his podcast. He'll still have 
people talking about Ethereum on his podcast. And I think he would legitimately, if, if the thesis changed and he was like, okay, you know, maybe there's a better thing out there. I think he, he would, he has like the wherewithal to switch and, uh, or maybe not even switch, but at least acknowledge, right. Where some of these guys, it's like, it doesn't matter what happens, you know, they've, they've put their line in the sand and, and they're not going to budge. Uh, I know um, they have ones that I, I think will specifically be bears just for the attention and they're playing the devil's advocate. Um, and that I think is tiresome. And so I don't like dissension for the point of just generating conversation. It has to have a meaningful backing to it. And so, yeah, it's, I understand the need for thoughtful discussion. And if you're, if the points have value and you're bringing something to the conversation, like the debate that you have, if both sides are bringing up good points, I think that's a really important part of discourse and shutting down that discourse is should not be promoted at, at any level yeah like would you not if you're a bitcoin maximalist would you not want bitcoin to be challenged in any way you know like the only thing that's going to make it better is if it's challenged and if projects pop up where it's like man this this might be a competitor and then the community makes a decision to upgrade and make slight changes here and there that are going to be beneficial in the long run i mean that's what it's all about it's like you don't want to run this thing like North Korea, where everybody thinks that the supreme leader is the one and nothing you can do or say is going to, you know, like take or downgrade them in any way. I don't know. Uh, I think I it's good for the space. It, why does it have to be either or? I, I know people that are ETH maximalists. And when I mentioned that the gas price was high because it was like 500 away, which is like a hundred bucks a lot of times. And if you want to deploy a contract, a thousand plus. Yeah. And I'm like, man, the cost of... <laughs> You know, gas is really high, man. And now it's less than 10, thankfully. And he'd be like, I can't believe you're saying that to me. Do you know how much the Vitalik has done for us? And I was like, oh, man. But we're, a lot of this is, you know, they say that a rising tide raises all ships. Yeah. I, I think that we're it's incumbent upon all crypto leaders to advance the ecosystem, like not by tearing each other down. But yeah, saying that project, like you say, Bitcoin is good for this. This is good for this. And it's not at the expense of the other. Yeah, I could very easily see a world where Bitcoin emerges as kind of like gold 2.0, right? Very clear store value and other things come along where this is going to be used a little bit more for transactionary stuff. Or uh, I think Sailor was even saying today, and I think it confused some people. He was saying, uh, I don't know if you saw the clip. He's basically saying that he thinks the U.S. dollar will continue to be the global reserve currency, but it will basically be on the rails of Bitcoin, which to me kind of sounds like gold-based currency, right? It's a very similar concept, just using a different thing to peg the dollar off of. I don't know if that's exactly what he was getting at, but it just goes to show that there can be multiple fish in the sea and they're all just going to be kind of doing their own job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was interesting how the digital yen really made the Federal Reserve Bank hop to and start exploring this in a big way. It may have been the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston or, or one of the ones out east that is playing around with a blockchain architecture just to kind of keep track of things. So he may have been referencing that, uh, but yeah, I, I like, you know, they've tried different things in the Caribbean with their sand dollar and they've tried like different interesting experiments, but I'm really amazed at how you're providing a lot of stability through these community organizations like um, the trust dollar or, um, you know, XDI or let's see, um, you know, Polygon has a 
it's a token that's linked to the dollar. I'm amazed that really the stability of a lot of these tokens that are linked to the dollar, it's the community that's using these, you know, traders to, you know, keep things in line. And I think if you have the government that comes in and says, boom, I think it's actually the case for um, USDC where the FDIC is backing the, the token once you get it on the platform. But if the government can say, you know, everyone that uses the USA coin or whatever is backed by the Federal Reserve, um, if you KYC in, like that's powerful and that'll make a lot of altcoins have to try to compete with something new. Yeah, absolutely. The other funny argument I, I hear, and this is probably just from people who are not very educated on the space, but when every time, you know, every three months, there's a rumor that pops up where it's like, oh, there's going to be a US dollar coin, uh, whatever they're going to call it. You know, is this the end for Bitcoin and cryptos? It's like, well, you don't really understand any, like if they can just print digitally more US dollar coins, then what does it really matter? You know, <laughs> nothing's really changing. We're just getting rid of the printing press. I don't know. I think the most compelling thing, they asked uh, a question and answer to Pomp. It was like, what could really make Bitcoin go to a dollar? And it would have to be wide scale banning of its use and to keep the public ledger public. Because I know that the IRS through Coinbase, like they will scrape the blockchain. And so if you KYC into one of these exchanges, they know every transaction that happened and they'll make sure that the transactions that are reported are consistent with what's being reported to the IRS. Yeah. So, you know, you have projects like Monero or others that are doing a concerted effort to have a private blockchain. Um, and I think in, other, in some countries, maybe in France, that they're actually blocking the uses of a lot of these private blockchains because it's inaccessible or, um, you know, they, they can't audit it uh, on any level, even if they have a node. Yeah. Or a computer that's privy to a lot of the data, you know, it's um, obfuscated um, by the, the actual wallet itself. Right. But yeah, I, I think if there's some sort of ban that's like literally in every country that could happen, but you're right, there's always going to be some sort of jurisdiction like Singapore that's going to say we're going to have the most aggressively pro crypto laws. So come here and do business and then the whales will come in force. Yeah, yeah I totally agree. What, uh, what do you think the biggest threat is? in the crypto space, or maybe just to make it easier, Bitcoin specifically, because a lot of projects. I think that if there's a concerted effort of broker dealers and the banking institutions, and rather than you know the Winklevoss twins and a few kind of pocket billionaires here and there, if there was like a wave of regulatory um, difficulties, then that would present a insurmountable problem. I know Elizabeth Warren talked recently about the electricity being yeah. a problem and yeah it does take as much electricity as like a country in africa or maybe a small one in asia um to provide that backing to um you know make it so that you can't do what a 51 percent attack which is like making the blockchain so you can reverse it or create fake transactions so yeah if there was some sort of push there i think that that could buckle and they uh the other thing is that if you have like smart computers in the future that would would be able to do an aggressive attack onto the passwords of the wallets. So be able to, um, yeah, find out what the wallet passwords are. That would essentially render the blockchain useless because any um, wallet address would be able to be compromised. But from my understanding of quantum computing, that's a little bit of a ways down the road. Yeah. So I think those two, regulatory and then quantum computing really kicking off in a big way would be a problem. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I agree with most of that. Luckily, and I'm a 
I'm an idiot when it comes to like engineering and science and stuff. So I'm uh, just going off what I what I've been able to research. But it doesn't sound like quantum. The amount of quantum computing they would need is going to be happening probably anytime in our, our lifetime. It seems pretty unrealistic at this point. Exactly, Rich. That's as far as what I've seen too. Yeah, it's it's a long ways down the road. But I would tell um, the people that are interested in this space that uh, I mean, we were talking before the call, like I became educated myself on free resources on the internet. And there's a real aggressive push for free things on the internet. And there is a lot of great free content. And even in my education, I'm still amazed at the free sources you're able to pull up on Coursera and edX. And then when I talk to employers, at least in the San Diego area, you know, all the way up the coast to San Francisco, <coughs> the push now is that people aren't as interested in kind of where you went to school. The first thing I'll get from a company I'm president. <coughs> no problem. I'm going to cut this right out. <laughs> Appreciate that. I love live to tape. <laughs> Is what's their GitHub? And they'll want to see the development that they've done, what they've been able to do in practice. And a lot of these MOOCs, as they say, you know, massive online courses that can be enrolled by anyone for free most of the time. You're able to get your nails dirty in terms of doing a little bit of the code. You're able to learn along the way, depending on how fast you want to learn. And the people that I know that are in computer science and are intimidated by blockchain tech, they're like, there are no textbooks, really. Uh, there's some TED Talks, but they were forever ago, like, where do I start? Yeah. And there's just so much great free resources. And I would encourage people just to do a Google search, jump onto those free platforms. And there's a lot of opportunity, especially stateside, I remember um, my undergraduate degree was in architecture and I did some stuff in real estate and finance. And I would always tell myself, even if you're in California, which is where I am, and I graduated in 08. So I'm like, by the time it's 2020 or thereabouts, like every, every coder job in the US is gonna be gone. And I've only found that there's been a more aggressive um, hiring clip. Hmm. And essentially in California, We've seen a lot of demand. If you look on the glass door numbers, it continues to go up for this type of coding. And it's really, really interesting to see how a country's currency and the demand will still kind of keep pace because, you know, in the US, we have a lot of VCs. We have a lot of ent entities that want to grow small businesses. So uh, I know that you have like a lot of listeners in the US and Europe, Canada. So I encourage people if they see amazing coders like on Europe or on YouTube that are from, you know, all around the world, I encourage them to still give it a try yeah. and to see if, if it's something they have a passion for. Yeah. I think uh, that's part of that exponential technology growth curve, right? It's easy to think, Oh, you know, all the jobs are going to be taken, but man, it's crazy. We're, we're just getting started as crazy as that sounds. And uh, it's only going to be more and more in demand as, as we progress here. Um, while we're talking about resources to learn, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about what you provide. I know you put out a newsletter on LinkedIn. Talk to us a little bit about that. And then uh, let's get into what you provide with uh, the course that you're, you're getting um, uh, cleared to, to teach, right? It's going to be virtually. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. The Previous year, it was available um, with live office hours and 
to the extension school at uh, CSU San Marcos. And now it's asynchronous. We're seeing a lot of platforms you know, like Coursera and stuff and schools that are putting it on there so people can learn it at their own schedule. Um, you know, I have young kids and I know a lot of people are trying to juggle lear learning a new skill with a full-time job and then family and all that. So it just, I found the most interest in this type of alternative, alternative format for the delivery of this content. So uh, you can look for that on my LinkedIn, which is LinkedIn slash IN slash DeFi. Uh, and then on there, I have a link to my newsletter as well. I found with the newsletter that all this is so quick that people want to know like, oh, you know, Elon Musk was on SNL. What are the implications for these various projects? What does his involvement say about crypto as a whole? And you can't really find that in a book as, well, as much. And I was impressed by the number of really compelling newsletters that are already out there. Uh, Castle Island, Pomps is good. And there's a whole host of them on Substack that are free. And if you pay the $10 a month for a lot of them, it's amazing the quality, the research. Masari is another one of them that you'll get like really good. And so also have a book coming out, uh, Dow, The Time Is Now, where awesome. I'm just talking essentially about how these horizontal organizations are so much better for the people that are working in them. Because while the power shift really in vertical organizations, which is most of the legal entities here in the States, uh, does flow to the top. And we are looking for that figurehead with a DAO. So many of the people that come on and provide value along the way, when there's a pop and the organization sells or tokenizes or whatever, you have hundreds of people that are having a meaningful impact on that, as opposed to kind of like a st strategic few. And uh, we're seeing with the pandemic that I think a lot of these use cases, especially in crypto and remote work, got moved forward a decade and a year. Yeah. Because prior to this, I think you'll agree, Rich, like the concept of remote working or being outside of the office for like months or just middle managers want to be able to kind of watch what you're doing and keep you accountable so they can kind of justify their jobs a lot of times. I know there's good middle managers. And I have a lot of friends that are, but the fact that organizations have run just as well or even better a lot of times with remote work has proved that a lot of these decentralized organizations that are fragmented around the world um, and that distribute rewards among employees in a much more egalitarian way can scale and do well. And it's, it's cool to see that. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, before we go, it is a crypto podcast or I guess a crypto interview. So it would be wrong of me to let you go here without giving some type of prediction on the rest of the year. So <laughs> it looks like you're already rolling your eyes at this question. <laughs> you, can, uh, you can shrug it off if you want and, and we can move on, but- um, No, no. I, I, I have a definite take on this. I think any token that is firmly saying that we're an infrastructure, um, Ethereum, for example, you know, they do sprinkle in a certain amount for to support the open source use of their technology. I think it's hard to nail down a value associated with that. Yeah. I think that I look in terms of what I spend my time in, I do DAOs that are generating revenue, or I look at projects like FTX which you know have leadership that are investing in good efforts to involve mass adoption, get people on board, um, and then have a real profit backing that goes into a token burn. So it's pushing up the token based on the scarcity and then buying it up internally. Right. Kind of like um, the stock buybacks that you're seeing a lot of times with uh, big organizations that are most likely done because a lot of the options 
that are awarded to executives are based on a stock price. So they have a, a natural incentive to push the stock price up. So these organizations like a DAO would have an incentive because it pushes up the whole community to push the token price up. So I would say I would predict that platforms that have a strong profit backing, I'll say, if I could say a token, I'll say FTT, because with all this volatility that you're seeing, when positions are closed out, the fees are enormous. Mm -hmm. So platforms that are earning, like Binance earns a billion a year, FTX is right on its heels. And that cash goes into buying the token back based on a schedule that it is very um, forthright about. So I'd say any token that has a profit backing and that keeps them within a reasonable range. I know Coinbase went public at a 200 price to earnings, which is huge. And that's the reason why so many people went liquid, especially the VCs. But if they're modestly valued and they have a profit backing, then I feel good about it. Okay. Yeah, I'll take that answer. Um, I'll be uh, keeping track of that. Well, Rob, I got one question. I try and ask everybody, as you can tell, I'm, uh, I'm ripping one off of Pomp's podcast where he asks everybody the same questions. So uh, if you had 24-7 access to one mentor, dead or alive, who would it be? I'm really impressed with engineers that can speak well because like they, the engineers that I know, they say, if you can speak well and you're good at being an engineer, that's like a superpower. Yeah. A lot of people <laughs> have either or. So I think an engineer that really speaks well, uh, I would like to have as a mentor. And I, I think, honestly, I got to give it up to Vitalik because Vitalik or Lex, because I consider them both pretty dyed in the wool engineers. Yeah, I would be fine being mentored by either of those <laughs> because they can speak well, and you know Vitalik. Friedman, for, correct, correct, okay. correct. Um, for years, uh, Vitalik would go to conferences, community build, glad hand, talk to engineers, kind of buy them beers, and get to know them on a one to one basis. But if you can be good with people, speak well, and then you know what you're talking about in terms of the tech, man, you're really kicking off, and things did kick off for him. So either one would be good. Yeah, and Vitalik could teach you his dance moves also. That probably <laughs> Hey, he's got he's got the speaking and he's got the engineering. So we can forget about the dance moves. That's that's only fair. He can't have it all. <laughs> you got that right, Rich. <laughs> all right, Rob, uh, go ahead and uh, close out with any closing thoughts you have and then um, where people can find you. I would go back to people look into the awesome MOOCs they have on edX, Coursera, Feel free to check out my asynchronous MOOC on my LinkedIn, subscribe to the newsletter. And you can find me on LinkedIn slash IN slash DeFi. Um, and I'd be happy to have you as a subscriber on the newsletter and keep staying tuned to this awesome podcast. <laughs> Thanks again, man. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. We'll do it again soon. Have a good one.